right, so we can talk a bit about Paticca Samupada because you've already been exploring in the cave of the mind. And um, the, generally, um, the way to think of Paticca Samupada, uh, dependent origination, is basically one thing follows another. You have a couple of foundational things, and then when something happens, a whole bunch of stuff happens in a hurry. Okay. Um, now, generally, it's taught in a specific kind of order. And that generally, um, it, the way that it's taught is first in um, forward order, in the sense of this causes that, and this causes that, and this causes that. But actually, in practice, it's practiced kind of backwards. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we're kind of slow, and we catch on late. And so a whole lot of stuff is rolled on before we wake up to it. All right? yeah. So as Swati gets better, then we can back up and get faster and faster so that we can really see what's going on in the mind. But it's best to understand it in forward order first, so that then we can back up with it. Now, as a preliminary of the um, teaching of Paticca Samapada is to teach about um, the five aggregates. And why? Because the five aggregates are actually the foundation of Paticca Samuppada. Everything on, that you will find in the five aggregates, you will also find in, in Paticca Samuppada, except in the Paticca Samuppada, it's going to be in much greater detail. Okay? okay. And, and, and a bit of mixing and turning things around a bit. Um, and the reason for that is basically the whole point of teaching this thing of Paticca Samuppada is um, for the student to wind up figuring out how when we start in ignorance, we go through feelings and wind up in suffering, which is exactly now a way of stating the second noble truth. Through ignorance, we go through feelings that wind up in suffering. And you can see it that way in Paticca Samapada, and you can see it and describe it exactly that way in the Second Noble Truth. And I think that's brilliant. I mean, the Buddha was really brilliant to figure all of this out and to put it in such a, consent, a con concise way. Um, but generally, it's taught in kind of a disjointed way. And so I want to make sure that you understand that no, what we're basically doing is we're unpacking a suitcase. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. And that one of the things in that suitcase is Paticca Samuppada, but it's got all of this stuff packed around it. Okay. Okay. And so uh, all of it fits right back into the suitcase or right back into the box it was in, and everything fits in cor correctly 
together. That in fact the five aggregates are part of um, Paticca Samupada. And that uh, the Paticca Samupada folded out is in full great detail folded back up. It becomes the second noble truth. You can actually see the second noble truth. It starts here, it ends there, this is in the middle. Is basically, and so we're expanding what's in the middle of it all to see why ignorance causes suffering through feelings. Okay. And also we begin to get a little more complicated with the feelings. That feelings are a little more complicated than the way that it's described in the Second Noble Truth because in the Second Noble Truth it's, it's sort of like the kind of feelings by the time they get this way it really is suffering. So loba, moha, and dosa, the word, uh, I often get them backwards because the Thai word for angry is moho. So that must be um, uh, the one for uh, crazy or, or, or uh, ignorant or deluded somehow. And then the other ones are greed. Greed means runaway greed, means I gotta have it. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of that is okay, here's an example. Oftentimes, in a crowd of a stadium that sports or in something like that, someone will at one point come out and throw gifts of some kind into the audience. Yeah. Okay. And a whole bunch of people can see where that thing is going. And if it gets anywhere near me, then all of the people who have that feeling will start to scramble madly. I want it. I've got it. I have it. I want it. I want it. And all of these hands. And by the way, none of those people are really watching what they're doing, who they're falling over, what damage they're doing, or anything like that. But they basically lose their mind in that greed. If I want it, I got to have it. And sometimes they even get into fights over it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's an example of it when it's gotten really big greed. But you can see how quick that happened. Yeah. I mean, while that thing was in the air, it went from a whole hum into I got to have it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... That, that's why we have to get really fast and get fairly good at getting really fast is because it really does happen in the time it takes to toss an item or to extend one's arm. So, um, the foundation, though, of, of the whole point of the teaching is to see that how not just that suffering is created, but that always suffering has a partner. And when I use the word suffering, I'm just being classical. What I'm really meaning is dukkha. And dukkha means unsatisfactoriness. Okay, so um, the reason that things are uh, unsatisfying and... um, We don't, there's a, there's a quality of not liking in it, 
but it also has the quality that is difficult to do endure. But mainly it has the quality of ownership in the sense that it's not just dukkha, but it's me who is suffering. Because if there was no me here, what's to suffer? All right. The fact is, is that there's a great big me in there. And this is what we actually are talking about is, is that uh, the Trilokana fits right in with this in the sense of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. You've heard that before. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. No, not saying the this uh, three way. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta is uh, everything is temporary. Nothing is permanent. Um... Everything then is subject to destruction and decay. Now, destruction and decay in this frame of reference is a kind of a different definition of dukkha, because this is the the, the definition would be destruction and decay. But you can see that destruction and decay is built into everything that changes. If it came together and was created in that sense, then it's going to fall apart. A really clear example of that is an automobile or car. Where actually is the carness in the car? Because you can take that car apart. You take it apart in your mind. You see an engine over there and the wheels over there and the steering wheel over there and the hood over there and all kinds of parts. And all you now have is a bunch of car parts. But when you look up at that part, you say, oh, that's a piston. It's not a car. Yes. Okay. That the car is only a car because of all of those ingredients come together to give uh, the car a new quality. This is what they mean in uh, uh, science when they're talking about in systems theory that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yes. What's the greater part? The transportation. Now all of these parts put together. But there's really no car there. If you can put a car together, it will come back apart. If at old age or you get tired of it and you ship it off someplace, but anyway, someday you're going to lose that car. It's not going to stay permanent. In fact, many people in their lifetime will go through 10 or 20 cars. But boy, the car I have now is my car, and if something happens to me, it it's me that hurts, not the not the car. Okay. Yeah. Um. So that's the whole process. Where is the me in there? Because part of the um, process of understanding the teaching of the Buddha is that me that suffers is not there all the time. Nor are, is it the only kind of me that in fact you can choose to be the me you want to be rather than the me that suffers or is the bucket for uh, dukkha. The me can become a bucket for wisdom, as it were, or joy, right? But the way that it winds up as a bucket for um Dukkha is well described, but the first thing that we have to start doing 
is to figure out that at the level of the five aggregates, there is no self there. Okay, it's, it's sort of like uh, starting in the trunk of the car or some part of the car and say, is carness in this area of the car? Yes, sir. Okay, so that's what we're going to do is we're going to take part of the, uh, uh, the car apart one piece at a time and say, is there a, uh, a carness or is there a real selfness or a real essence of self or a me there? So, uh, in some way, I think I already have uh, once uh, this kind of experience in my sitting practice, but I couldn't like uh, give a proper name to it. It was a feeling of like uh, uh, there is the thought process and there is the hearing process, but there is no center to this kind of processes. They are all experimenting them themselves, like hearing, hearing, hears, hearing, and uh, thoughts, think thoughts, and like each stuff uh, experiments itself without an an actual actual like a uh, car, you know? Right. Exactly. Part, so. Like uh, yes. It's all processes. Exactly, yeah. just but one process and each part does its job, but no one of those parts is the definition of the yes, whole job. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. That this self, in fact, is a, um, it, it's like the drivability of the car. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, that's a good way of looking at it because in the old way of talking about it, and especially things like Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, all the religions have a soul of some kind. Yes. And that's what the Buddha is actually attacking. He's attacking to this essence of who you are, mm. who is author. Okay, author is a soul or something that's going to be an essence of author, and that essence of author is so strong that it's going to survive the body of author's death. And then, uh-oh, it may be strong enough to survive death, but it's certainly not strong enough to survive God. God's going to use that soul as a football, and he's either going to kick a goal or with it, or he's going to <laughs> punt. Uh, <he's> so <laughs> And so that's a pretty tragic way of looking at it is, is that, um, yeah, the, the self is permanent and it's everlasting and it is subject to outside forces. Okay. Yes. And so what the Buddha is saying, no, it's not temporary. It's not everlasting. And guess what? Ha ha. It is not subject to outside forces, though we have let outside forces mess with us our whole lives, especially when it started when we were kids. Yeah. And now it doesn't have to mess with us anymore. He did make that link of like, uh, especially when we were kids. Yes, because we all made... start out as a victim. Yes, yes. Yes, we all start as out a as baby. a victim. We yeah, have yeah. to have our, as a baby, we have to have, we can't clean our own butt. We can't even get up to go to the bathroom. Yeah. We can't feed ourselves. We need to be fed. 
when we get a little older, then we recognize that, oh, I've got to be held by the hand in order to walk. Mm-hmm. And I and uh, the the furniture is too big. That I'm a little fellow. And not only that, but if I don't do what I'm told, I get beat. And I'm not big enough to fight back. And so we start off as victims. Yeah, we yeah, also yeah. start off as fairly happy. But yeah. over the time of that victimhood setting in, what does happen is, is that all... You've heard of the, the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Because we were raised from childhood, we all have a certain kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. What do we mean by that? It means that the stress of childhood interferes with the present moment in a disorderly way. Yes. So way after the trauma is finished, it's still acting disorderly. And so what that basically means is, is that when we're kids, we're about happy about 80% of the time and unhappy about 20%. By the time we become adults, we're 80% unhappy other and way about around. 20% yeah. around, the other way around. And some people are even worse up at 99, 95%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they <laughs> never have any pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they're desperately looking for it. And so they climb to the top thinking the more the money they get and the more power they get and the more adulation they get and the more fanship they get, etc., that will finally be enough to make them happy. And that's why a lot of rock stars die early. Yeah. is because yeah. of disappointment that they cannot find. And, and Rod Stewart was right when he was singing Can't Get No yeah, Satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happens. We can't get no satisfaction until we practice on a parasati and learn that oh yeah, I can get satisfaction. I can manufacture it myself. So, back then to the the point about the start is that there is no self in the body. There is no self in feelings. There is no self in perception. There is no self in consciousness and there is no self in our memory banks but we often confuse who I am is what I remember myself to be except the memory is not very good we forget we change things around we make things up sometimes we even have a night dream and then later days weeks later we remember but we don't remember it was a dream. We yeah. think it was real. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> memory is not who we are. And that's also especially true when old people get diseases like Alzheimer's. That kind of proves that our memory is not who we are. Something else is. But it's not memory. And it's not the body. And it's not also... Feelings, that's the important one, because that's where we go away almost every time by making statements that proves it. The statement is, I'm angry, or I'm hungry, or I'm sick, or I'm tired, or I'm sick and tired. But it's I'm, you see. Sick and tired means nothing until it's I'm sick and tired. 
One of the stories I used to tell is, imagine that you looked out the window and saw that there was a car on fire. Okay. First, you just detected that there was a fire. And so you were curious. You looked out the window and you saw a car on fire. And you thought how horrible it is for a car to be on fire. And then yeah. you recognize, wait a minute, that's it's my, my car. <laughs> and then it gets worse. Right. And yeah. then it gets a whole lot worse, doesn't yeah. it? Uh -huh. Yeah, there's a whole lot of difference between a car is on fire and my car is on fire. Yeah. Okay. So that's the whole point is, is that the body is not ourself, but many people think so. And in fact, there's a whole lot of industry that supports I am the body. Let's look at some of them. One of them would be the sports industry or a lot of sports sale and especially sports clothing and, and that kind of stuff. And makeup, cosmetics, uh, Botox, okay? People lie about their age. Why? Because the body is not the age they want it to be. Well, if it was my body, it would be the age I wanted it to be. But it's not. Yeah. We don't control it. It gets sick, and we don't want it to be sick. And in fact, not wanting it to be sick is the major problem with being sick. If you were sick and it was just okay, hey, I can take a few days off and I can lay here and act like I'm really almost dead and really don't have to do anything at all. Wow, sick is pretty good. <laughs> And then that sickness is not so bad. It depends upon our attitude about it. But when we say, oh, I'm so sick, uh, we almost have to prove that we're sick and how bad we are in order to get the sympathy of other people, like getting uh, time off from work. We can't just say, I'm sick, and then go. Yeah. And be sick and enjoy it. You have, you to, have, be to, have to be really sick and prove yeah. how sick you are. Yeah, yeah. Okay, in that regard, it's me, and that's where all of that uh, um, uh comes, is we attach to the body as me, to in fact, no, the body is not you, but it is a constituent component, but it's not who you are. When you recognize, oh, that's right, not the body, the body is here that it's a constituent component, that if the body died, what would become of me? <laughs> yeah. Ah, and so because we attach to it in that way, that the self would die, therefore the self goes into panic mode, basically you can see what that really is about, is that's an instinct, that's instinctual behavior. It's called the self-preservation instinct. And this instinct that tries to keep the body alive, we mistake for that's me. But no, it's just an instinct, one of many instincts. But it's only one instinct. But when it's there, then we'll mistake, oh, that's who I am. Yeah. Uh, because uh, we rely upon the body, but actually the body itself is not me. And then we realize these feelings also are not me. There is anger, but I'm not angry, or I'm not the anger. But I recognize the anger there. I'm something else.
used to be, I used to think I was the anger. So, like in Anapanasati, I am not the anger. I see the anger. Aha, uh-huh, I see you, Mara, is the way the Buddha figured that out. Is that yeah. I see it. By doing so, now whatever I is, it's not the anger. We are not our feelings. And we can do the same thing with fear and sadness and uh, um, frustration, anxiety, stress, all of that. When we feel it, the ignorant or the instinctual way of doing it is I am that feeling. And so even at that level, the I jumps around based upon whatever we're attaching to in the moment. I am the body, I am the feeling, I am the thought that I'm having, whatever it is, we always think that that's me. But we can actually say, no, there's not any me, not really in the feelings. Whatever me is, it's not the feelings. That the feelings actually are more associated with the body, and we just figured out the body is not me. And so now we begin to say, all right, well, is it in fact all of these memories that I've had? Well, we've already just proven that. That is, no, it's not, it's not the Sankara. It is not all the stuff that I've collected and stuck together as the combination of who I am because I remember when I was four years old and I remember when I was six years old and I remember when I was this and I re- No, you don't. There's not a you in there except when we put the you in there right now. That when that stuff is dragged out, it's just a memory. It's just a picture. So, Sankara is memories? Mm-hmm. Okay. And much of the, me- of the Sankara memory is nonverbal. Yes, imagery. Yes. Lot, well, not just nonverbal, but it's also uh, um, outside of the levels of, of imagery, even, and that is emotional or yes. feeling level. Okay. Yes. But that's an important distinction that I'll make right away, um, and might as well, is that in the Sankara, there are three kinds of Sankara there is okay. bodily Sankara. Examples of that is violinists learn to play the violin. And so you have a violinist and two people, uh, other two people, uh, all three of them carrying a violin. And you start clapping your hands and saying a well-known song. Which one of them is the most likely to pick up the violin and put it on their shoulder and play along with you? The two guys who can't play a violin or the guy who No, the one who played it. Okay. That kind of proves that, yeah, there's something in there. Yes. Okay. It's in the body. The body learns things. Football players learn certain things for football. And some of them learn it very well, and therefore they get highly paid. Yeah. All right. Okay, others learn things about golf. Other people learn play music. But there's a lot of stuff that's done that the body itself learns. Um, an example of the body actually doing the learning is the example of the, um, the barroom uh, piano player uh, sitting there playing his mood music that he plays every night. And a young lady in a, a fancy dress comes up and leans on the piano and uh, gives him that wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of uh, hello. 
and he continues to play right along. But yeah. he enjoys the conversation. He starts to talk yeah. to her, but he does not miss a note. Okay, fast forward a few days, and this time it's two plainclothes police officers walk in. And there he is playing, and they start interrogating him about where he was on a certain night and what he was doing, because they think that he's a robbery suspect. <laughs> and he doesn't miss a note. All right. Why? And you know that he's paying attention to the cops. <laughs> but the hands can continue playing. I think that that's so marvelous that the human being is that way. I can see people doing that with the guitar. I've been in music for a long time. And when somebody really learns something, that it goes right into the fingers. You do it over and over and over and over and over yeah. again. Stitching, crochet. Old ladies can stitch and crochet and knit and do all kinds yeah, of things yeah. and have a delightful conversation and she, yeah, nobody's watching what she's doing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that kind of proves that the body has a memory system. It has Sankara's as well as illness and old age and other things like that, but everything is piled in there. All right, so we pile in there also verbally in the sense of what language do you speak and that can also be part of the body for instance uh, uh picking up a new language so that you sound like the locals and don't have an accent of any kind is almost impossible because part of learning how to speak in the first place when we were children but if we were raised in a bilingual household then the body will be able to with the vocal system be able to produce both languages correctly. Yeah. Okay, and there's other factors in there. So what language you know, and um, uh, what belief systems you were taught, uh, concepts, language, all of that stuff that is verbal. And when we also talk about verbal, we, we can also mean uh, vi visual also, in the sense that that's the way that we put thoughts together. Mm -hmm. But okay, but then there's the third kind, and this is the Chitta Sankara, and that is generally in English translated as mental. But no, wait a minute, if you think about it correctly, the verbal is actually the mental. That this word Chitta, and my friend uh, Robert, who knows Thai language well enough that he reads the um, uh, Pali Suttas in Thai. It's really, really interesting because the Thai translations are so much better than the English translations because the Thais have been at it for centuries. They know what they're doing. So that uh, Thai, the word chitta, is translated into the Thai word jai, jaya. And what this means is the emotional system or the heart. Okay. So basically what... What we have done now is Sankara has saved body, feeling, and uh, our body, mind, and heart. Yeah. That's basically what we've talked about. All right. Yes. So the yes. Buddha made that same kind of distinctions. But all three of those Sankaras will, will wind up as fodder for the mill or the machine that I'm about to talk about. Because the machine itself is not you. But the machine is called the grinding mill that takes the input from the outside world, including touch and the body's position 
and the eyes and the ears and all of that information and processes it into something that is internally understandable. That process, that, regur that regurgitation in the Pali is called the Nama Rupa. And also, Nama Rupa uh, means taking the real and turning it into uh, and naming it or uh, an internal representation. We okay. in English would call that process perception. Okay. Okay, Let's... what do we mean by perception or perception? is how, what do we do in order to be able to see it on the inside or to, to grasp it or to become conscious of it? All right, that's the process that we go through of sifting around in all of our buckets of Sankara to make sense out of what we've just seen. And so that, then we understand angry voice and we understand harsh and we understand pleasing and we understand sweet and sour and we understand all of these things because we've been there, done that, we've had this before. Except that the uh, bucket of memories had this before kind of rots away from time to time, changes things and that only really heavy-duty things tend to get left in there, and the lightweight things tend to flitter away, not, not so important. Well, guess what? We spent most of our childhood in pleasure, and it meant no big deal. Yeah. But many things that happened when we were children were a big deal. And, we, and so those are the things that we not just remember, but we store also the feelings that we had. So when little Johnny writes on the wall he for 10 minutes, and mom comes in and scolds him, later in life he's not going to remember the pleasure he had of writing on the wall, he's going to remember getting caught. Yeah, okay. So... Who is little Johnny in his memories as an adult? Is he the John? I mean, he could have been a budding Picasso. He could have been a Rembrandt. You know, we don't know yeah. who he would have been, but we do know that that trauma is what he remembers that now keeps him from being an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Because what you're doing is bad and you get punished. If mom was really wise, she would have bought him a paint set yeah. immediately. But no, she gets angry because he's writing on the wall. And now he's got to clean it, and that's a lot of work for a child to undo his beautiful art, as well as <laughs> the scrubbing is a bit difficult. So this is the problem with the Sankara, is oftentimes we're using let us say, inappropriate or bad information to do the process. Because remember, this stuff happens fast. It can happen really fast. Uh, and so the, the quicker we get, the better we can clean up the actual understanding of what's going on immediately so that otherwise, because if it was really dirty, then it would wind up causing feelings. Yes. But this is really, really fast. 
right? So right now we're just looking at the, the, the process of the perception itself. And that perception part is actually a process of the brain that takes information from the past and the present, concocts them together into an understandable, uh, let us say, presentation product for understanding. We can get it into that context. Okay, Do, is that machine or is that mill or is that process of understanding who you are? It couldn't be. Couldn't be, couldn't possibly yeah. be. Perception is obviously not it. Yeah. No, that's not it. All right. If that's not it, if perception is not it, if feelings is not it, if body is not it, is, is um, uh, Sankara not it? Body, feeling, Sankara, perception. If those four things are not it, then what could it possibly be? The last item on the list is consciousness. Yes, there was. Mm. All right. And actually, a lot of, um, um, let us say, philosophy and old ways of looking was, yeah, that's it. That the one thing that's going to happen when I die and go to heaven is that I'll know that I'm in heaven. I'm conscious. Yeah. Whether I remember my mother and daddy or the dog that died before me, or am I sitting here waiting for my grandkids to arrive? I don't have to remember any of that because the important thing is the feeling of heaven and I don't need family to feel like I'm in heaven. Yes. When people are on earth, they feel like that they need the, be, uh, the family now, therefore they will need them in heaven. But if you're actually in heaven, you don't need anything at all. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So, um, the whole idea is, is that so long as you know, that's that's who I am. That the one who knows, the the one the knower. But then we have to recognize. Oh, and this is what the Buddha was on about. There is a sutta number thirty-eight, uh, Mahatanga Sutta, which means the analysis of craving. Okay. I don't know why that's the analysis of it. Mahatanga uh, Vibhanga is the name of the sutra number 38 and that the analysis is starting with this with uh, a story that this monk was out in the uh the area there and the other monks were uh in a conversation and he said something and they started to question and cross question and try to set him straight about what the teachings of the buddha and he kept clinging to this and so the word got back to the Buddha, and so the Buddha called the guy to come. Is by the way, named Sati, son of a fisherman. I think that the students, uh, let us say the suttas, were being poetic in the sense of calling him son of a fisherman because that's the, uh, another way of saying that he's stinky. Mm. Mm, he's, he's fishy. <laughs> Sati, son of a fisherman. Um, so... One another monk that was in the similar situation was uh, son of a Vulcan there. The guys who, uh, uh, what do you, uh, uh, the big bird of prey that comes for the carcass, the vultures. Mm, okay. okay. So he was the okay. son of a vulture dealer or a hunter, I don't know, whatever. Uh, okay. So 
uh, son of a fisherman had this claim. And what he claimed was is that it is consciousness that runs in circles from life to life, experiencing the results of good and bad actions yeah. from the past. Wow, that's almost exactly a literal um, uh, Vedic definition. Okay, so he was given the Vedic um, uh, definition of, of consciousness, and the Buddha actually chastised him. Yeah, he said, you're an idiot. He said, uh, there's not a spark of wisdom in you. And then he turned to all the monks around. What do you think about Sati, son of a fisherman? Does he even have a spark of wisdom? And they said, no, and they're all laughing at him. And so Sati is sitting there like this. And that's when the Buddha then explained that, no, it cannot be the self because consciousness is dependently arising. Ah, now we're getting down to the guts, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Dependent origination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consciousness is dependently arising. It is not permanent. And it is dependent upon two things, the actual rupa, the outside world, and the eye. And if you don't have the eyes to see and you don't have the sight to see, then there's not going to be seeing. And in this case, it's the seeing itself, the ability to see, not to look and see and understand, but just to be able to see something. That's consciousness. Imagine that when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that happens is consciousness wakes up in the sense of now you can see and feel and touch. Because you can touch, you know, you, in fact, you begin then to put enough perception together to realize that you're laying in bed. But before you wake up all enough to get perception going to realize and recognize you're laying in bed, the first thing that happens is consciousness the waking up. Many people will think of that as I am. But it's not. Because if it's an I am, then what were you when you were unconscious? Especially if you're looking for a permanent self. So, consciousness is, in, is dependent. And it is dependent upon having some object to be sensually aware of. So, with with the ears and with sound, there is hearing. With objects and the eyes, there is seeing or sight. With the uh, the food and the tongue together, there is taste. And when there is shirt and the body feeling it, in the sense of being feeling, touches. And so you can feel the touch of the shirt. You can feel in various places the touch of the shirt is different in various places depending upon the stretch of the cloth and other things like that. So that's just bare consciousness. That consciousness, by the way, is not there all the time. It has to have an object. 
But even if it has the object, if we're not paying any attention or we give it nothing, that means we're not actually perceiving it. It's just laying at the level of consciousness, like the, the touch of the cloth of the shirt on the body. It's there all the time. But we're not conscious of it and we're not perceiving it. Therefore, it's not part of our, uh, let us say, mental understanding or let us say the image of the uh, of the screen of our own existence or our life, our own personal television screen inside the mind doesn't have the touch of the body in it because we're not bringing it to the yeah. level of perception. Okay? So, now we can begin to see that consciousness itself is not the self. And this is the real teaching of the five aggregates. And these are all already, as we've been describing, parts of Petitya Samuppada. And so we can continue on with it now in the sense that this is the basics. We understand that much of the Sankara that we've been talking about starts in ignorance. So ignorance is the foundation. And with found, the ignorance is the foundation, we have this polluted and not quite uh, uh, um, perfect, but yet usable memory bank that has body, mind, and heart kinds of memories. And we use that as a base so that when consciousness arises, it will then be perceived through Nama Rupa and processed into an internal representation. That internal representation in Pali is called Salayatana. And the, the word Atana means senses, but in the Salayatana, it means the internal senses. So how we yes. present the external senses is done internally, but it is messed with. It's been hacked. What has it been messed with and hacked? At the perception level, the Sankaras were not perfect. And some of them were downright bad when they happened, and so they're stored that way. And so we wind up in our perceptual system of results of getting an image, uh, or let us say an internal representation. It's actually all of the senses, so that we and that we generally incorporate them. So that if you have a memory of childhood, you'll actually have also a memory of the body's position. Yes. that you go through with that because those memories are, are stored like that so this stuff that's coming from the past influences our present perception in the moment that's why they say that no one lives in the real world everyone lives in their head this is what we're talking about the answer to that is of course you could not have it any other way Every living thing, and actually any, uh, you could go so far as to say artificial intelligence, cannot absorb the entire reality as an input. It is impossible to get all of reality of the moment as an input. It's just overwhelming, way too much for any individual human. But that happens with dogs. Everything operates in the sense of what the dog sees is not what he sees with his eyes. It sees what is he's processed with his dog memory. 
so that he comes up with a, an internal representation and then he operates on that. That's the way life works. And when we understand that, then we can say, wait a minute, maybe we need a better investigation of reality before we rely completely upon, let us say, first impression. Let's take a look. Let's investigate. And sometimes we can investigate a long time before we finally get our sankar and our feelings out of the way so that we can actually really hear someone or really look at something to find to figure out what it really is because the reason we couldn't is because we were messing with what we were looking at. They've known this also by in the sense of uh, statistics or other sports. An example of that would be that the birds, that the bird watcher wants to watch while they're out in the field by themselves is different bird behavior than the bird, than the bird observer does when he's out there in the field because the birds see him better than he sees them. And they know he's there. And because they know he's there, a lot of their behavior is going to be in reaction to him. This is also true in statistics. The people will think one way, and then the statistician comes up and asks them a question, and now they're mulling it over like they don't have a clue. Well, what they're really looking at is what am I going to tell this guy because I'm not about to tell him the truth. And so... Um, Every, uh, the, um, there's, a, there's a classical, actually, definition of this process. It's called, uh, the observer always bastardizes his own data. Mm. And so the observer of the eyes, by the time we process it into sight, it's been bastardized. It's polluted. It's not good. Therefore, the right thing to do is to make sure that we continue investigating properly. That's part of why right view is the lead item on the path of importance, is to be able to see things, to look, to look at what's really going on rather than uh, first impressions or just going the way that we feel. So, now we have covered uh, uh, number one, which was a jiva. Uh, 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 which means not knowing, Sankara, then we have Sanya, consciousness, Nama Rupa, or perception, Salayatana, <clears throat> comes now to the biggie. I mean, this one is Pasa. What is Pasa? It means contact. I've used it several times uh, in description of what we're talking about. That which impacts you. Okay. All right. What is it? that actually gets us is not what happened out there, it's what we make of it. And that's what impacts us, is what we've made of it with our Sankara. Once we recognize that what we're, what we're actually doing is, is that we're responding to our own delusion, <laughs> rather than responding to reality. All right. That is what we mean by wisdom at the point of contact. That we recognize that this picture that I've created is delusional. Because it's got my old Sankara mixed with it. I'm not looking at what's going on right. 
This is an important point Bhikkhu Buddhadasa makes, a really important point, and that is uh, wisdom at the point of contact, prasa, so that when feelings arise, they will arise um, wisely. So the wise feeling that arises is different than the ignorant feelings. If we don't have wisdom at the point of contact, in other words, if there is not this observer who is monitoring and watching or guarding the mind, so basically a lot of people will say, oh yes, I understand what you're doing is that you're giving the observer a job to do so that it will flex his muscles. That's exactly right. And who you are actually could be this observer that is observing what's going on, including the observer itself. Is she? Okay. Like so, a... the knower. What is it that, okay, this is the investigation. This is one's right view is to really be there to keep looking and keep looking and not trust what we just saw because it's probably got feelings mixed in with it. This is what we mean by that point of contact wisdom. But if the feeling is ignorant, then the feelings will arise. In other words, we bought the lie we've just told ourselves. <laughs> because then wisdom is not there to tell that this is this is something wrong with this. It needs to be reevaluated. So, in that regard, there's three kinds of feelings that can arise. One is the feeling of, I like it. The other feeling is, I don't like it. It's difficult to endure. A sensation is uncomfortable. The light is too strong. Or the light is not enough, I can't see. Anything, I don't like it. And then the third kind of feeling is neither a liking nor an unliking, but it's still a strong impacting feeling in the sense that we don't know which way to, to classify it. Is it friend or foe? Is it good or bad? Do I like it or do I not like it? I don't know. But instead of going back with the wisdom and going through an investigation, in, instead what we do as we go into a state of confusion. We go into a state of doubt. If that doubt gets really strong, it will actually generate itself as fear. Okay, so you see a stranger coming down the road in this direction, but you can't tell whether it's male or female yet. We become very curious. We want yes. to watch. We want to try to figure out what yes. is that guy or that thing coming down the road? Is he armed? Uh-huh. All right, so all of that kind of information is, but why do we want that? Is because we don't know how to feel about it. Yeah. So this is that third kind of feeling. Now, ignorantly going on, if we like something, we begin to want it. If we want it, then we um, say, I got to have it. Going back to the analogy that when that uh, gift comes flying through the air toward the, uh, yeah. they went immediately from, oh, I like that, into, oh, I want to have it, into, I've got to have it, and now we're actually grabbing and trying to take it out of somebody's hands or making sure that I get it first, that kind of thing. That's the grasping and clinging to that hat or that object, okay? 
this is what we mean by upadana. But the actually standing up and warning the hat, that's tanha, that's thirst. Ah, I want it, I want it, I want it. So, we do that also in the opposite of when we see things we don't like, we want to avoid them, push it away, get rid of it, uh, control it somehow so that it doesn't affect me anymore. Yeah. Why? Because I don't like it. All right? The same thing happens with the confusion falling into fear. So, this tanha leads to upadana. The upadana is called clinging. This is why Buddhism is also famous about the word clinging. And in Western Buddhism, they use the word attachment. Yes. But I wouldn't use the word attachment. Okay, attaching is completely different. Why? Because you can attach and unattach, uh, let us say, a trailer hitch to a truck. Yeah, you want to hitch it there, you want to attach it, but you don't want it to cling. (laughs) In the sense that when when you go out there and the uh, the trailer says, you can't stop, don't, you leave that alone. That's mine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now we're beginning to see what we mean by clinging is... Um, because that's where the mind, its mind comes from. It belongs yes. to me. That's different from attachment. But in fact, uh, there's a sutta that goes so far as to say one fortunate attachment. And that just blows the mm-hmm. whole theory about attachment right out. I see. And what they mean by one fortunate attachment is to attach to the here now. To the present. That's, yeah, a, good, yeah, yeah. that's a good fortunate yeah, attachment. Yeah. Okay or to the attaching to the Four Noble Truths, or attaching to the light, or attaching, attaching to the Dhamma. You know, there's a lot of things that yes. are really worthwhile and fortunate to attach ourselves to. Yeah. We become really eager for the Dhamma, as opposed to clinging, which is already in the process of, in fact, with bad feelings, it's already got the root or the seed of unhappiness or suffering built right into it. But this is immediately... And it goes into the clinging. Yeah, yeah. And that clinging, then, the four modes of it will bring about the four woeful states. The four woeful states of hell. If we're angry, we will be reborn in hell. And now we see that connection about what is birth and self all about. Yeah, 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 the self is actually going to arise or be created in a hell state of anger. Yeah. I literally, I become angry. Yes. And so we're in hell. Why? Because hell means I want out of here. I got to do something. I'm, I'm desperate. Yes. Desperation. Strongly, outwardly, desperation. I'm in hell. Okay. <laughs> and so this is one of the four modes of clinging. And when we cling that way, we can wind up in hell. If I want something, like the guys um, who were grasping and clinging after that gift that was flying through the air, most of them didn't get anything. Most of them didn't get anything. Only one of 20 guys that were standing trying to grab that hat, only one of them got it. And he may have gotten it after it was pretty well beat up, (laughs) trying to take it away from others. Okay. (laughs) And so, um, 
the disappointment is built in because of the odds. Uh, and so uh, we're naturally going to be in a state of starvation. We don't get what we want. And so we're in that state of hunger. Hungry ghost. Hungry ghost. Preach. Yes. Precisely. We're born in the hell state of being hungry ghost. We can't get what well, we can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> Or we're born in um, uh, the animal world. And the animal world is basically the world of doing what we're told to do. Mm. Okay, so in some cases, there will be a boss there that says, if that kind comes in that direction, it's mine. But you better be out there and get it. And if you don't bring that hat to me, I'm going to beat your ass, okay? So now everybody's out there trying to grab that hat because they're afraid that they're going to get punished. And so that's their behavior, okay? That kind of thing um, is what winds us acting like animals, of doing what we're told to do without a hope or benefit, no reward, just you do it. This is the idea of the carrot and the stick. You, you know the story about the donkey yes. uh, following yes. the wagon, and the driver is there with a stick beating the animal, but out in front they've got a, a carrot dangling out in front. But as the donkey walks and tries to get that carrot, he's just moving the stick yes. along, and the carrot is still right. He doesn't get the stick. Oh, excuse me, he doesn't get the, the carrot. carrot. Yeah. He doesn't get it. Maybe when the carrot gets old, he'll get that carrot, and then they'll put a new fresh carrot out in front of him to long after. That is called school. Yeah. That's what they do for school, the whole 12, 16 years of it. Yes. It's carrot and stick, yeah. and you got to walk through that. The question is, Are you going to find any enjoyment in your life while you're doing what you were told to do? Most kids don't. So they yeah. wind up being disappointed because they keep getting no reward for all the work they're putting in. Yeah. It's not rewarding enough. And so then they're lied to, saying, oh, well, what will happen is after you graduate, you'll get a good job. You can have a wife and a house and a car. And then he gets all of that stuff years later, and he's still unhappy. <laughs> he still has not gotten what it was that he really wanted, and he may not even know what he wants. All he knows, he's stuck in a state of dissatisfaction. Yeah. Because we were doing what we told to do. We've been doing our whole lives what we were told to do. That's our society. Yeah. And we wind up acting like animals. Or we can be, the number four, is fear. Being ready for battle, but too afraid to go into battle, whatever that battle is. And the example is the Asuras, which is about the same thing as the um, Titans in the Greek mythology. The Asuras are, are in heavenly creatures, yeah, yeah. but they're complete failures because they're afraid. And so they're, they're warriors afraid to go to battle because anybody they battle against will win over them. But they're highly trained, skilled warriors. So now that would be the kind of situation where the child, with only one or two lines in the play, comes out on stage and is completely frozen in what they call stage fright or butterflies in the stomach or uh, performance panic, I've heard it called. 
right? So that's a that's part of the nature that we have is that we freeze. That kind of state is actually what uh, brings about the fact that humans are nowadays not doing enough breathing. Because when we're frozen in fear, we're not breathing. And we also really don't know what's going on. We become very confused. Which is actually this area of that third kind of feeling that I mentioned. That third kind of feeling gives rise to um, eventually becoming confused and uh, shutting down uh, in fear. And we may not even know that it's fear that we're responding to. And so these are the four modes of clinging that give rise to these four uh, states of um, woe, the unwholesome or woeful states, leading then into dukkha. Or in fact, they come along together as a package. Just because we say them linguistically in the order that they're stated, doesn't mean at this level that the cause and effect is a solid domino falling that can be seen. No, this stuff happens in a package deal. That if you're in the woeful state, you're in dukkha. You're already in the state of dissatisfaction. That's what brings it about. And so when we get into these woeful states, it's kind of hard to get back out of them. But people eventually do. The question is, when are they going to wake up? Because that's the next talk topic or the next talk that we'll have is how do we wake up backwards to this process that we have now taken in forward direction. From ignorance gives Sankara, gives uh, sets the stage for consciousness, giving rise to the job of perception, making sense out of what we got, presenting that uh, made product mentally that gives rise to contact, pasa. And that contact is what gives us the feelings that either I like it, I don't like it, or I'm not sure. That's what then leads to the, to the grasping or the, uh, the wanting, uh, the gotta have it. I like the word want. We, we're in a state of want. We're not good enough right now because I like it. I, I might, in fact, just enjoy the state. I like it. But oh no, we've gotten ourselves beyond just the pleasant state of liking it. It happened instantly, yeah. but we immediately went from I like it to I want it. Yes. And now that we've got ourselves into the state of wanting something, now our wisdom is, is going to be a little more hard to come by. But if we can catch ourselves um, for it, uh, like um, let us say the wanting is you're in a scene where the, you're sitting at a table, the girl comes into the room, and you like how she's dressed, she looks nice. And so now you're beginning to like her and want, and want her, and so that's the preparation of still sitting down. And then comes the next level, I've got to have her, and that's when we stand up mm-hmm. to go walk over to her, okay? And then the ownership game starts of, I want you, I've got to have you, you've got to yes. be mine, etc. All of that kind of stuff that eventually might wind up with him getting his face slapped. And now he's either in hell or he's frozen in yeah. fear or he doesn't know what to do with the rejection yeah. that he got because he wanted her so bad. 
Okay. I see. And so this is exactly, and the Buddha saw all of this stuff 2,500 years ago and left it down so that we can gain this, this system and understand it. And so, like I said, next time, when, when you call, we'll back up and go backwards through that so that we can see how uh, early in the process we can go. Okay. But uh, certainly we want to go to the place where there's no suffering. Yes. Where the mind does not wind up in suffering. I've already given you the, key of the clue to that, and that's wisdom at the point of contact. Yes. That was like uh, one of the most interesting uh, talks we had, especially at that part uh, of like, uh, we are not like the consciousness in itself, because uh, I could not like, uh, until now, I only could like uh, diminish things until I reached this state of uh, pure consciousness. but. If even that is not the like the last limit, it just like blew my mind. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right, good, excellent insight. Okay, yeah. so next time you call, we'll finish the deal and go backwards through it. Okay, okay, looking forward but to. But I'm glad that you're getting insights into this. Once you begin to see how this process works, darn that stuff is so good. Now I know how to find my way around this cave. Okay. Okay. All righty. Well, we'll see right. you later. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh,